sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian, and sitting in the second chair this week, filling in for Murdoch. Phil Medley's back. Hey! It's been a while. How you D- doing, Brian? Dude, I'm good, and I'm thrilled that you're here. Uh, thank you so much for, for filling in for Murdoch this week. And, I mean, this show, it's what it's about. It's collaboration. Not just between me and you, or myself and Murdoch, but also between us and the listeners. Thank you That's for right. everyone who reaches out on a regular basis with questions and comments. Uh, I, I gotta say, like, this show is better than I ever thought it would be because we get uh, to to interact with folks that listen to the show. And you can do that via email. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. John wrote the show this week. He's got the question. Oh, man. Okay. Oh, yeah. Let's go. It, like, I also w- will point out that much like Murdoch, like, I, you said you would, you would uh, sub in, but you do not know what no we're talking clue. about. So you, we no could be clue. headed somewhere. We are heading somewhere sort of dark. <laughs> okay, here's here's the question. Guys, love the show. Could we get an episode about Brian Wilson and Eugene Landy? Oh, snap. So do you know that name, okay. Eugene Landy? Uh, Landy. Ooh. Yeah, so... I've heard it, but I don't know, yeah. Controversial self-help guru. That's how John describes him in his letter, who oh, resurrected okay, okay. Brian Wilson's career in the 1980s. Okay, okay. So first, though, I mean, I know you know the name Brian Wilson. So of course, one of the big names in rock history, Brian of the Beach Boys. Let's establish what we've already covered in the back catalog of this show for reference. First, way back on episode fourteen, we talk about the Beach Boys and their connection to the Manson family. This has gone down in history as one of our most listened to episodes. So if this is how you know us, if this is how you came to the show, <laughs> you're in the right place. More Beach Boys content. Uh. Uh, that's also not our only Beach Boys episode. We had the legendary. Rock journalist Joel Selvin on the show a while back. That was episode 42. And we discussed uh, the Beach Boys connections to Jan and Dean and some other stuff that about that musical scene in California at the time. But today, to answer this question, we got to really dig into something totally different, a totally different time period for the guys and for Brian Wilson. But let's talk for a second just about the Beach Boys. Tell me about your relationship to the Beach Boys. So it's funny story. Guy in college tells me, and I, I am in the throes of like, like I'm just starting to get into like indie rock and like John Spencer and like yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. And he says, Puh. and I've told him I was like a huge Rolling Stones fan. He's like, Puh. he scoffs at it. He says, <laughs> the only thing I'm listening to is Sun Vault. <laughs> And Pet Sounds. I'm like, and what? He's like, and Pet Sounds, you know, by the boys. I'm like, what a, what a musical snob. <laughs> I'm going to go home and listen to Exile on Main Street. You take your little Beach Boys record. Um, and then, like, five years later, I was like, well, I guess I could try it, you know, out. It took you five years? <laughs> I was really mad at the guy for, you know. <laughs> We're only listening to two records for poo-pooing your John Spencer Blues explosion. You, know, you were mad yes. at him. That, that's quite the grudge, Phil. Yeah, yeah, and I think he even like that band kind of. Um, but uh, and then so then I listened. I was like, oh, oh, it's, it's pretty good. You know, so I mean, it was interesting. A, so. a, one of the greatest albums of all time. So, yeah, I'll put it there. I'll what, put it there. One of the greatest accomplishments of production of all time. 
Yeah, I would. Definitely for know, the time, right? And remember, this for the time. This predates Sgt. Pepper's. The Beatles yes. will openly say that Sgt. Pepper's doesn't happen without pet sounds. Of course. Well, and I think the, the the playing. I think you have to give some credit to those session people who were just well, yeah, because out of this world. I mean, and we're going to talk about this, but Pet Sounds is a Brian Wilson solo record. Yes, you know, like it's with not Carol a Kay it's not a Beach Boys record. Yeah, with Carol <laughs> no. Kay on bass, dude. For <laughs> years, I have had a picture of Carol Kay on my desktop, like just minimized on my desktop. To occasionally, I will run across it and be like, Carol Kay. What? I can only hope she's wearing awesome glasses. Oh, the, yes. She's wearing incredible <laughs> glasses in the photo. I fucking love that you know exactly what I'm talking yes. who I'm talking about, what yeah. I'm talking about. Carol Kay. If you don't know Carol Kay, do yourself a favor. Google that shit right now. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so I, similar sort of thing. I discovered Pet Sounds in high school. I think someone told me about it. I must have, I don't know, read about it on a list or something. And I think I, in maybe it was a BMG Music Club pack of cds or something at some point i got myself a copy of it and you know the the big songs on there uh have always been important to me but it is a really interesting record when you read about the history of it and the period of of the beach boys history that it happens in and then of course all this sort of stuff where the the beach boys sort of just real quick primer the beach boys sort of disintegrate into two different things in the mid sixties, like they sort of become Brian Wilson and then they become the beach boys. But half the time it's just labeled the beach boys. Um, but right. We're jumping ahead. We're going to get into all that. Let's get specifically, uh, back to the beginning just for some context setting, right? The beach boys, a band of brothers with a cousin and a friend thrown in. You have a, you have a band with a cousin. <laughs> Yes. You're like, you're like the Beach With, Boys. They're all cousins. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I, I hope you're in better health than the Beach Boys were uh, by the end. But uh, So they were managed by their father. They they form in 1961. They have a hit record in 63. That's Surfing USA. That's the first one. Mm-hmm. Murray is their dad. We could do a whole episode on Murray and what a terrible yeah. person he is. But because he's terrible, uh, he fights to get what he wants, and he gets them meetings and exposure, and he gets them a record deal with Capital. And this is that time period where like artists are just just wrung out for any worth that the record label can get from them. It, I don't I don't know if you've ever done this math on when their records come out. Pet Sounds, which we were just talking about, comes out in '66. And did you hear me say they got the record deal in '63? Yeah, that was that's a quick ascent. Do you know how many records are in between '63 and '66? Probably twenty. Nine. Twenty. Nine. Nine. Okay. Yeah, yeah which I, was, I mean, twenty was a funny number. Nine is the actual number, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Which is hilarious. People release albums every four years right now. Yeah, I know. <clears throat> well, and when we talked about Jerry Lee Lewis uh, on the show recently, we were talking about his wilderness years, and I made this crackpot claim slash posed a theory that rock was dead in America in the early '60s, and I I stand by that somewhat because I don't really think of the Beach Boys as a rock band. Do you think of the Beach Boys as a rock band? Oh. Not, I mean, especially when you play them next yeah. to the killer, right? It, it, you, you're, you play the you play the Star Club disc, the Jerry Lee Lewis stuff next to the Beach Boys. It's not the same thing, right? They're a pop band, right? Pop band. That's fair. Well, and I, this is also why I do not give them the crown when when I get into this conversation that I bring up on the show all the time that I love to talk about, which is greatest American rock band. Like who gets that title? And people will often say, "Well, you have to give it to the Beach Boys," and I'm like, "But were the Beach Boys a rock?" band like i'm not sure they were either of those things most of the time though yeah they did put out pet sounds which 
one of the greatest albums of all time. We've already established. Anyway, it it is worth noting that the Beach Boys are in this void between Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis and then the British invasion on the other side. They get their heads spun around by the British invasion just like everybody else. They actually maintain some commercial success during this period, but it definitely makes Brian, at least, a little self-conscious about his lyrical themes. And so, like, the Beatles land in February of 64, and, like, by April of that month, Brian Wilson, like, publicly stops writing songs about surfing. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) no more! (laughs) He's like, they ain't doing it. Yeah, yeah, they ain't doing it. Uh, So... A whole bunch of circumstances collide, right? There's this change in culture. Brian's mental health has never been good. A lot of this uh, armchair psychology traces back to Murray and the way he was treated by his father and his family. He's got this desire to not be so hemmed in. And so you have Brian doing something. And I don't know. I'm curious if you knew this. Did you know he does what the Beatles will do a few years later? He retires from public performance. I did know that. He stopped... And the rest of the band kept playing. They kept going. And do you know who they get to fill in for him on a temporary basis? No. Glenn Campbell. Oh. Glenn Campbell was in the Beach Boys for like a year in the mid-60s. Wow. But yeah, he pulls the guys together after Christmas of 64 because there's this whole thing where like two days before Christmas, he's on an airplane and he has a panic attack. And he says, I can't go on the road anymore. So Glenn Campbell comes in and they eventually replace him permanently with uh, another guy from the scene. But now... Brian Wilson now has the time he needs and wants so he can experiment and make new things in the studio that aren't about surfing. And right. this, Is this where he puts sand in his living room? This, probably. Uh, <laughs> this starts the non-surf period of the band. There's this really good uh, Al Jardine quote that he's asked about pet sounds, and he says, quote, it wasn't music you could necessarily dance to. It was more like music you could make love to. Ooh. Uh, or maybe I, I would... That's- that's pretty good. <laughs> I would I would rephrase it and say it's it's also music you could do drugs to because that's what yeah. Brian was doing. Brian was doing yeah. lots of drugs. Yes. Yes. LSD in particular. Uh the guy's fragile already. So LSD does not help. Um and it's funny cuz if you read about him Brian's supposedly like anti-drug in the early days of the band. But mm. they he gets in with this guy who's a talent agent. Talent agents will corrupt everything. It, <laughs> Right, his name is mostly <laughs> Lauren Schwartz is the guy's name. He will turn Brian onto psychedelic tripping in like '65, and Brian gets really into it. Uh, he justifies it by saying it's about self-discovery. It's about I'm discovering myself. It's not recreation, man. I'm doing some work on myself. Wow. Do, do you know who he writes Pet Sounds with? Do you know who the other main songwriter on Pet Sounds is? No, but I knew he he was not alone. No, but it's this is an insane story, man. So <laughs> it's this guy named Tony Asher. Now, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. You, you may know his past work because before this, he was writing jingles about Barbie dolls. Uh, <laughs> I'm not kidding. This dude literally only thing he was doing was working for an ad agency recording jingles, and he was happened to be. It depends on the version of the story that you believe. But there's either he met Brian Wilson at a party or he was at the studio next to Brian Wilson one day recording jingles. Singing about Barbie. Singing about Barbies or, or some sort of doll or something. Uh, Brian will end up calling him and inviting him to collaborate mostly because it's a weird choice, right? Like because he's right. trying to do stuff very different than he's done before. He's been very hemmed in by his family. So he's like, oh, cool, a 26-year-old copywriter with eight credits on the greatest album of all time. 
No, why not? Um, <laughs> there is this Tony quote where he says that Brian was doing LSD, but he says his crazy behavior probably had just as much to do with the, quote, whole claustrophobic scene with him and his family. So the family stuff will haunt him, you know, on and on and sure. on. Now, Pet Sounds, like we've already said, credited as a Beach Boys album, essentially a Brian Wilson and Tony Asher solo endeavor. And this is where this split I talked about happens, right? Like where you've, you've got Brian mm-hmm. Wilson creating things and sometimes it's under the Beach Boys moniker and sometimes it's not and they're out on the road without them and there's all this stuff happening. And in all of this, it's just important to note that Brian Wilson is not doing well. It's, it's interesting because we're sitting with a 2022 lens on mental health looking back at the 60s. Yeah. And now we know there's terms and there's phrases and there's all these things that you're supposed to do to take care of yourself. And it just, you know, it was a different time, which is a trite thing to say, but a true thing to say. And uh, there are lots of legendary anecdotes over the next few years, right? He works on good vibrations. He tries to make this album that we now know as Smile. Uh, smiley smile smiley smile is what it was called first you're right like i thought that was a joke when i read it um and, and that says something about your mental health right uh right. and and yeah his mental health is not good and you can imagine something like this not good for a marriage brian wilson's first marriage the one that produces wendy and carney shouts to wilson phillips uh yeah that like that first marriage could be an episode of its own her name is Marilyn, and i gotta say it's hard not to find her stamina impressive as she will Stay with Brian Wilson until 1979, a 15-year marriage. What? That's, yeah, he's only I, yeah. only I married only married twice. Him. Only married twice. Well, uh, 15-year marriage is basically troubled from the moment it starts, and this is what's messed up, dude. So they meet when I believe the Beach Boys are on tour, early 60s, and there's this girl group opening for them, teenage yeah. teenage girls. They're like 15, 16, and they're sisters. <laughs> and it's pretty clear that Brian was never sure which sister he was the most into. Like Uh-oh. even at yeah, even after the marriage, <laughs> even after the marriage, he like there's this. Uh, I, re- I came across this in the research that there is some documentation to say that Brian was like encouraging Marilyn, his wife, to sleep with other people so he could like do her sister sleep as a sister. Wow! Yeah. And like the, to make it more messed up. Uh, yeah, he was producing a record for the two of them together in the early 70s. So this is all happening at home on top of the erratic behavior, the paranoia, and the generally out-of-control aspect of Brian's descent into drugs. So it's not surprising <laughs> that it is said to be Marilyn, that first wife, who is uh, the one who, along with Beach Boy's management which again it's all in the family right the main manager is stan love you'll recognize yeah. that last name he's also a cousin yep. um yep, yep, yep. and it is it is a love cousin who will um along with Marilyn, call eugene landy so let's bring this asshole into the story uh <laughs> but <laughs> okay i'll just read from his obit he died in 06 this is new york times obit uh a psychotherapist who was variously called a savior and a snake oil salesman. And that's that's sort of actually a nice description of him, one of the nicer ones I read. <laughs> to cut to the chase a little more, a Brian Wilson biographer named Peter Ames Carlin is quoted as saying, 
Landy definitely transformed Brian's life and knocked him off of what was a suicidal death spiral in the early 80s, but his new lease on life came with a deed restriction. Again, wow. these are like the nicest things I found about him. So <laughs> who is this guy? Like, who is Eugene Landy? So he's he's born in Pittsburgh, born to a couple of psychology professors. Apparently, it's the okay. family biz. Um, that's not what he wants to do though. And, and here's the thing. When you read about this guy, this guy ends up going into the family business because he can't hack it in show business for some reason, but he clearly only wants to be in show business. He starts trying to hack it in show business at a very young age. There's these anecdotes. If you read anything about him and pulling back the curtain a little bit, when I create this show, when I do the research, I typically will read something repeatedly about someone, especially if they're sort of a bit player in a story. And then I will go and try to go a couple layers deeper to see if I can find more verification of this and more details, right? Because there's sort of the wiki of it all where people will just say, sure. Eugene Landy did this. And then there will be like not a lot of backup for it. So I go try to find the backup. I will say the stories about him at a young age are repeated often. I found them in a lot of places, but I could not get a below that layer of... Here's this random one sentence about Eugene. Here are the sentences that you will read when you read about Eugene Landy. Supposedly, at age 16, he pursued a career in show business. He produced a nationally syndicated radio show. Wait a minute, at 16? Yeah, at 16. And Wow. Which, I mean, he was born in 34, so that means in like 1950. He was, <laughs> like, I don't know. And then he discovers a 10-year-old child prodigy get ready for this named george benson you know george benson no i don't oh okay so i'm excited that i can talk about george benson for 90 seconds on this show <laughs> george benson is a jazz guitarist is really what he get, he becomes known as but he played with like miles davis in the 60s done all sorts of crazy stuff but he had this string of hits in the 80s and he had this song called Turn Your Love Around. Do you know that song? I used to play that song Turn on AC Radio. Around. Turn mm. your love around. Hold on. I know that hook. <laughs> Dude, I used to rock that song, man. Yeah, so uh, supposedly Eugene Lady discovers George Benson as a 10-year-old child prodigy. I like well, I find that hard to believe. Yeah, uh but yeah, I, do too. I mean, <laughs> it's so weird though. It's such a weird detail. It's like not the one I would make up if I was making up details, so I don't know. Maybe it's true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and then it, because of that, he he supposedly briefly serves as his manager. And then he works odd jobs as a radio producer, something both of us have done. Um, mm -hmm. He promotes records and supposedly produces a single for Frankie Avalon. This is all like before he's 20. Yes. Uh, yeah, he's real young at this point. <laughs> yeah. Despite these detours, the story goes that he does eventually fall in line with that family biz. He gets a bachelor's degree in L.A. and a master's in Oklahoma. Listen, I used to live near Oklahoma and go to Oklahoma a lot. I have no problem with it. But it's suspect to me that a guy's like my undergrads in LA and now to get my in the sixties to get my doctorate in psychology. I'm moving to Oklahoma. <laughs> I mean, how long was he there? Four that's, weeks. That's weird, right? It, 
<laughs> and he's not even done with all this stuff until the late 60s. It's 68 when he comes out of school. But between being free from school and meeting Brian Wilson at the end of 75, so there's a gap there of like seven years, he builds this nice little business. And as I said, this guy's real focus is being in the orbit of the entertainment business. It's all he wants to do. In a 1976 interview with Rolling Stone, he will give this quote, I've treated a tremendous number of people in show business. For some reason, I seem to be able to relate to them. Mm. Yeah, okay. This dude, (laughs) a psychologist, dude, this is the best part. This psychologist had his own press kit, a bio and a headshot. (laughs) <laughs> he was ready to rock like this was his whole thing he was like gonna do it up weird He's, he wants to be a movie star yeah yeah 100 percent. that's all that's what he wants to do he wants to be in the limelight but what does it that this guy actually does for people besides try to hog their stardom how does he get these la and hollywood types to pay attention to him here's the deal he basically latches on to these radical ways of treating people for addiction that's an oversimplification, but it gets you the idea. The big idea he gets obsessed with is this idea that he can do 24-hour treatment or what he calls marathon therapy. Basically, it's just he's going to control people for 24 hours straight. So we've got Brian Wilson, mentally troubled, drug-addled person. We've got Eugene Landy. He's a controversial crackpot who's obsessed with celebrity. But how do these two come together? And like I said, it's that first wife of Brian's, Marilyn, and the band management who will hire Eugene the first time. And yes, there's a first time and a second time. So 1975, Marilyn is very concerned. And she's at the end of this long list of ideas she had for helping him get his life together. I think it's funny to mention that one name that gets dragged into, you're going to appreciate this, one name that gets dragged into this as being the person who sort of enables Brian during this period is Danny Hutton from Three Dog Night. <laughs> Joy to the world! Oh, I love the boys and girls! Such a guilty pleasure of mine. Dude, like, so you used to program one of the greatest oldie stations in America uh, yeah. that no longer exists. And yeah. Eli's uh, coming. <laughs> dude, I know you used to rock the Three Dog Night yeah. on that stage. I actually, oh, yeah. so I... Saw Three Dog Night in 2000. What? Yeah, no, in like 2006, my wife worked for a hospital uh, that it was, their foundation would do a fundraiser every year. And one year, they brought in the Pointer Sisters. And then nice. the second year, they brought in Three Dog Night. So I have a picture of wow. Babyface Me. Maybe I need to find it and put it on Instagram. Rock and Roll you Bedtime do. Stories on Instagram. Uh, of me with the guys in Three Dog Night. I cannot remember if Danny Hutton was in the band at that point. Let's say that he was. So yeah. he he basically used to party all the time with Brian Wilson. The reputation wow. of Three Dog Night has just like not aged to ever seem <laughs> controversial or scandalous. So this idea that like that I literally read that Marilyn, Brian Wilson's wife, would send people over the fence at Danny Hutton's house so they like to sneak in and retrieve Brian. And I find oh that my gosh. hilarious. That is great to go get him. Reconnaissance. So, yeah, let, let's talk for a second about the insane stories that have surfaced over the years about Brian's behavior in the early 70s. Right. And again, I want to be I want to be thoughtful and careful when we're talking about any of this, because we're talking about a mentally ill person. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But we're also talking about a person who was doing a lot of drugs and taking a lot of chances and was, you know, had his moments of rock stardom. Um, here's, here, here are a few. I can't say a hundred percent that any of these are true, 
but they are <laughs> definitely on the circuit in terms of rumors that might be. Paul and Linda McCartney are said to have visited Brian in April of 74, but Brian would not let them in his house. No, uh, Paul. No, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Come back. No, I don't, I don't want what you're selling. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy Webb says that Wilson's presence at the session for Harry Nilsson's Salmon Falls saw him sitting in the back of the studio playing Dadu Ron Ron on a B3 organ, just haphazardly. Uh, Wilson was photographed, this one's good, at Keith Moon's 28th birthday party wearing only his bathrobe. Well, yeah. Wilson interrupted a set by jazz musician Larry Coriel at the Troubadour by leaping on stage and singing Bebop Alula while wearing a bathrobe. Bathrobe was like the thing for a while, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And here's the best one. Alice Cooper and Iggy Pop are said to have been at Danny Hutton's house, again, hilarious, uh, for a Brian Wilson-led sing-along of the folk song Shortening Bread, after which Brian Wilson proclaimed it was, quote, the greatest song ever written. Okay. Can you imagine? (laughs) Let's just imagine what that would sound like. Alice Cooper, Iggy Uh, Pop, Brian Wilson, all singing Shortening Bread. For all you guys who thought that Iggy Pop was so cool that he couldn't (laughs) hang out with Three Dog Night... And the Beach Boys. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> okay. Uh, as you can see, Brian was clearly needing some help. And Marilyn will say that like during this period, she would take him to doctors and he would like just all of a sudden sort of I don't I don't think it was that he would snap out of it, but like he would be able to carry on enough that it would keep any of these doctors from taking it super seriously. Right, like he would oh, just yeah. sort of snap into focus. And well, so I imagine too, like they would they would play it all off as drugs, right? Well, and that obfuscates everything because he was on a lot of drugs. And what starts to happen is there's no way of being able to pull out the permanent damage and the temporary damage, right? Right, right, right. To separate it. Sure. So here's this is the, there's also this weird cultural thing in the Beach Boys camp, right? Because it's all in the family. And I mean, you see this families are beautiful. I have one. I love it. And I think that being able to do something as a family, even with extended family is awesome. So I'm not knocking your band, Phil, but (laughs) I do want to point out that there's this culture that sometimes is created in these situations where like it gets so insular, they don't let outsiders in. And so for a while, Marilyn is trying to figure out how to solve this problem with the family. And so they hire the basketball player, Love. Now, his name is Stan. I think I said Stan was the manager earlier. There's another Love that's the manager. But Stan Love is Mike Love's younger brother who was a professional basketball player. Oh, my gosh. And they hire him to basically be Brian's bodyguard and caretaker. And this lasts for like three months. It doesn't go super well. And so Marilyn will hear about this guy, Eugene Landy, and and the fact that he'd been treating some of Brian's friends, like Iggy Pop and Alice Cooper, who were over at Danny's oh, house. Yeah. And so she will meet with Eugene Landy to discuss the situation. And Landy tells her, oh, well, you know, he's an undiagnosed and untreated schizophrenic. That's a pretty mm-hmm. bold assessment. Yeah. Marilyn said that during one of Landy's visits to their home, he like makes this house call where they're still in the interview phase, I guess. Brian just walked in the room and said, something's wrong with me. I need your help. And that started it all. That's a quote from Marilyn. So I think the idea first is to try one of these radical 24-hour therapy sessions. 
because this is the thing he's been peddling, right? Right. And, and Brian isn't just acting weird and using drugs. He's also gaining weight. There's like this fat Brian Wilson phase that comes and goes. Yeah. yeah. Landy says, okay, first there's a fitness regimen to follow. If we're going to do this and we're going to do it right, this 24-hour parlor trick that I have means that you're never alone. So he has this bevy of assistants that kick into action, and Brian is with one of them and under observation 24 hours a day. This is a quote from Landy about his approach. I had to be crazier than Brian. There's only room enough for one crazy person in Brian's head, and that's got to be me. I have to have the ultimate power in the situation. I said he had to get out of bed and start living a normal life. He said, make me. So how do you make a guy get out of bed after so long? Explain it to him first. No, you throw water on him first. And that's what I did. Whoa. Like literally, he's not kidding. He would throw oh, water yeah. on This is from a New York Times piece. At first, Mr. Wilson appeared to respond to Mr. Landy's treatment protocol, which included pushing him to exercise, padlocking the refrigerator, and on mornings when Mr. Wilson wanted to stay in bed, dousing him with water. Whoa. Wait, and so that let me ask sense. you. Yeah, are you... <laughs> I, I don't know what... Uh, I mean, we know each other pretty well, but I don't know what vices you might be struggling with. Do, do you think you need a self-help guru to move in and put you under 24-hour observation? I mean, water's starting to sound better than my alarm clock, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so they let this guy stick around for like a year. And a year? Yeah. Brian doesn't like it. But Landy's always threatening him with commitment to an institution. That's the other thing that's crazy about this, right? It's like, well, well if you fail this, the next step is probably, you know, your wife's at the end of a rope. You're probably going to end up in a in an institution. There's a bunch of crazy stories about how Landy starts to push his influence into the band. And he gets Brian Wilson to do SNL. Have you ever seen the Brian Wilson SNL performance? Oh, no. So Landy is standing off stage with cue cards, reminding him to smile. I, I love the colorful clothes she wears And the way the sunlight plays upon her hair It gets mixed reviews, but it's not that bad. It's sort of interesting to see him during this period. I'll I'll throw that in the show notes if you want to see the video. It's, uh, you know, people have described it as disturbing, but I think it's like because we now know what was going on during this period of his life. Right. But, you know, this is the sort of stuff Eugene Landy starts doing. He starts attending Beach Boy band meetings. Brian was still trying to be with the band or... Yeah, so this is this whole period where, like, he's writing stuff, and sometimes it's going to the band, and then he's also doing solo stuff, and there, so there is there is this overlap, and they're still trying okay. to include him, and it's it, there's, like, this right. certain point where Landy will leverage the band and Brian's inclusion to get access to the band because the band wants to use, like, there's just all sorts of weird, crazy stuff yeah. that happens. Now, the uh, the big problem here with Eugene Landy is that he gets very greedy. And he keeps raising his fee while he's doing this treatment. So it's like a monthly fee, and it starts to get more and more expensive. And on the third rate hike, which happens in December of 76, 
the management in Maryland decide they're done. So they kick him to the curb and they rehire the basketball player. And <laughs> the basketball player brings his buddy to the gig this time. He's like, listen, I need backup. He brings this guy, Rocky Pamplin. Now, I'm assuming wow. you don't know that name. I don't. <laughs> unless you or your wife keep copies of the 1976 uh, issues of Playgirl around, because he was on the cover in May Wait. of 1976. <laughs> uh, I'll have to check. <laughs> <laughs> and Marilyn starts having sex with him. So, oh, yeah, oh, there it, you go. it all gets there very complicated. I, I will say, like, if there is somebody I feel bad for in any of this, it's Marilyn. I mean, she marries Brian Wilson when she's 16 years old. Oh, it, gosh. She signs up for the next 15 years of her life to basically take care of a man who is not well. And so... Yeah. You know, this is a this is a nude male model paying her attention. I get it. This episode is brought to you by CarMax. Car buying reimagined. If you're looking for your next car, you have to check out CarMax. They have tens of thousands of CarMax certified quality vehicles, and you can shop on your own terms. Online, in-store, or any combination of the two. Plus, CarMax offers an unrivaled 30-day money-back guarantee, up to 1,500 miles. So you can make sure you found the right car and buy with confidence. To learn more, tap the banner or visit CarMax.com for details. Oh, wow. So... That okay. could have been the end of this, right? So they, they, they bring in the, the male model. Uh, they kick out the crazy self-help guru slash psychiatrist slash therapist, whatever he is. But let's bring him back. Well, <laughs> yeah, right. Brian, I mean, the problem is Brian regresses so much. So by the oh, end yeah. of 1978, he is just a mess again. And these relapse stories are as crazy as they are sad. Like, at this point, it's getting very... I mean, it's even sad to sort of talk about, right? He hitchhikes, he hitchhikes to West Hollywood at one point, and he plays piano for free drinks at a gay bar. A guy from there drives him to Mexico. He then hitchhikes back to San Diego. Police will find him barefoot and passed out in a park after that uh, whole incident. That's terrible. Um, this is also the period of the hamburger sessions, or the cocaine sessions, depending on who you talk... Do you know about this period no. of the Beach Boys? So this is true. There's this period of the Beach Boys where Dennis Wilson is convinced he can get the best takes out of Brian. And he knows Brian's a good singer, but he knows Brian has to be taken care of with what Brian wants. And so there are these, like Dennis will get Brian, isolate him from the rest of the band because the rest of the band knows what's up and they do not want this to happen. And he will buy Brian McDonald's and cocaine. And then they will go right together. And so, like, if you are a Beach Boys fanatic, you know about these sessions because there's this set of sessions that happen uh, that do go to record that I think are available somewhere that you can find where they are what is referred to as the hamburger sessions or the cocaine sessions because it's the music that comes out of this Dennis-Brian collaboration over shitty fast food. And hopefully good drugs. What's What's your shitty fast food of choice when you're recording? I remember one time only making like $15 at a gig. And so me and Joe were mad at the other two because they didn't play real well. This was was not my cousins. This was like one of the other lineups. And so we went to White Castle and spent all $15, which is hard to do. So I'll say White Castle. (laughs) That is the most Brian Wilson story you could have possibly just told me. I appreciate that. Okay. So 
in the midst of all of this, something else was happening. Brian is finally losing his marriage. And I mean, obviously, as I've already explained, this marriage had all sorts of problems. But sure. Marilyn cared enough to sort of keep Brian from getting fully taken advantage of. Like she was trying pretty hard, it seems like. Now, yeah. when she's out of the picture, it, it becomes a lot easier to get your claws into this guy. And so that's how Eugene Landy gets back in to the Beach Boys compound. Oh, man. And this time, he's not going after a year. The, the culminating event happens in 1982. Brian overdoses on a combo of alcohol, cocaine, and psychoactive drugs. Ugh. The fam, the management, they convince Brian it's time to seek treatment. And for some reason, Landy's name gets brought back up. Because I guess if you look at it objectively, he was a pain and he was expensive, but he did get Brian back to decent health in 76. He was sober for like six months. He lost a bunch of weight and got fit. And so as messed up as it was, I mean, these are people who live, again, they live in their own insular bubble in this family, and they also have tons of money. So they go to Landy, and they're like, Landy, will you come back with Brian? And Landy, the ultimate con artist, plays hard to get. And he he says, no, I don't know. I don't know. And the reason he does that is this is his chance. So this is what he says. Okay, listen. If you guys want me to come back, I'm only taking him back on a as a patient under one condition. You have to give me total control with no interference. Wow. He cuts him off from everybody, and he moves him to Hawaii. On the surface, he gets it done. He gets him healthy. He sobers him up to some extent at least. But he cuts him off from everybody. He gets him back to L.A. in March of 83 and won't allow him access to even his ex-wife or his kids. And Landy keeps asking for more money. But they're seeing results, right? So Carl Wilson ends up giving a quarter of Brian's publishing royalties to Eugene Landy. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And then, then Eugene Landy swoops in to the business and creative side of the Brian Wilson enterprise. Think about this. This is nuts. You're a musician. You have a band. This guy is a psychologist. And suddenly, he is Brian's business representation. He is at meetings. He shows up to talk about stuff. Like, he's the guy you deal with if you're going to deal with Brian Wilson. Ooh. You know, the term that's often used for this is Svengali. Do you, do you, know, do you know that expression? Do you um, know where it comes from? I, I've heard it, but no, I don't know where it's come from. So people will say that if there's somebody who's like puppet mastering someone else, they're the Svengali. This is comes from a novel from 1894 by a guy named George de Muir. Uh, the novel is called Trilby. And Svengali is a character in this novel who seduces, dominates, and exploits the title character, Trilby, a young half-Irish girl, and makes her into a famous singer. Now you know that. Honestly, uh, this book is super racist, and I'm really surprised we still use that phrase. Yeah, well, but there you go. <laughs> bottom, I, maybe we should just call it being a Landy instead of being a Svengali. I think Landy's a little better. Yeah, I mean, he's a um, white dude, yeah. and he's an asshole. So, yeah. But bottom line, <laughs> Landy has his hooks in Wilson. Now, if you want to see this for yourself, and I, I caution you because this is sort of hard to watch. But there is this wild and pretty famous video clip of this interview with Landy from 83. He had a year or two to live and he had died. He was, he was, he was, Tom Hewlett called me in and said, and said, we are worried that Brian Wilson is going to follow Elvis. Oh, 
God, no. Yeah, that's what Tom said to me. He said, we've got to do something. We can't let him just stay 300 pounds. Brian is sitting beside him. Like, they're sort of touching, which is weird. Like, not in like a sexual way, but they're just like sort of close. And Brian's like not talking most of the time. And he seems very out of it. And when he reacts, it's so weird and childlike. He's like, oh, oh. It, Brian Wilson may not be on the drugs he used to be on, but he's clearly on drugs, right? They, they, they've right. got him That's on That's what stuff. I'm wondering. Yeah, yeah, Landy Yo, probably Landy supplied him. Definitely had him on all sorts of drugs. And we'll get we'll get into what how severely he had him on drugs in a minute. But in 88, when he's finally releasing a solo album, a solo album which, by the way, Eugene Landy will get credits on, both for production and mm. songwriting. Not only that, Eugene Landy's girlfriend at the time will get songwriting credits with Brian Wilson. Songwriting credits. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. Those are the best kind. Those are the best kind. Well, I was thinking about this, though, when I was reading about this. Are they the best kind if no one listens to the album? Like, Well, I guess not. If it gets no airplay, yeah, then it's probably not that great. But So when this, when this is coming out, this record's about to come out, Rolling Stone embeds a journalist with Brian Wilson for a week. Hmm. I can't believe that Landy signed off on this. And this piece is in the show notes and it's nuts. If you want to go read it, it's like six pages long and uncomfortable and goes into a great description, great detail about what life is like for Brian Wilson at this point. And keep in mind, this is five and a half years after the intervention and Brian going back under Landy's care. This guy details that there's like, depending on the moment, all these different versions of Brian that you get. Uh, And it's rough stuff. So check that out in the show notes if you want. By the time this article hits, though, things are starting to unravel for Landy. And part of this happens because of another woman in Brian's life. So he's divorced in 79. In 86, he goes car shopping, Brian and Landy. They They go to the car lot, and they meet this woman at the car dealership named Melinda Ledbetter. She used to be a model, as most people in this story, apparently. And within six months, she will call the state's attorney general, trying to figure out how to get Brian out of Landy's control, because they start spending time together. Here's a quote. It was so obvious he was being drugged. We'd get in my car to go somewhere, and the first thing that would happen is he would fall asleep in my lap. That's sad. This, I mean, the whole story's sad. Like, there's parts of it that, like, you're tempted to laugh at some of these anecdotes about shortening bread or whatever, but, like, this is a tragic story of a man who is so, you know, and it's hard to tell were the drugs to hide the pain, was the pain bringing on the drugs. Like, there's just this, like, you know, how mentally affected was he by his childhood? Would the, did the drugs really do that much? You know what I mean? Was was he going right. to have these struggles anyway? It's like really hard to know because all these things are intertwined. And once Landy figures out that Melinda is influencing Brian in any way, shape, or form, of course, he has full control over Brian. So he will ban the two of them from seeing each other. Mm. Here's how it all starts to come apart, though. There's this guy named Peter. He's a therapist. And he goes to a Beach Boys fan convention in 1990. Okay. And he meets Brian Wilson. And as a therapist, he's like, something's not right with that dude. And he thinks, and this is back to your point about what sort of drugs did Eugene Landy have Brian Wilson on? He thinks that Brian Wilson might have something called tardive dyskinesia. There you go. A neurological condition that's basically brought on by overuse of antipsychotic meds. Huh. So this guy 
I mean, he's a fan, basically, right? Like, what's he going to do about this? So he finds the number to this guy named David Leaf, who has been uh, writing, I guess, about the Beach Boys. And David Leaf then uh, calls Carl Wilson. And during this period, they start going through paperwork, and they figure out that Landy has been named as a chief beneficiary in a revision of Brian's will. Oh, gosh. He's going to get 70%. The remainder gets split between his girlfriend and Brian's two daughters. So, wow. This discovery gets made by this woman named Kay Gilmer, and she's a publicist. She's actually employed by Landy. She calls... She sees it's wrong. (laughs) She sees it's wrong. And she's going through this paperwork and she sees this. She calls Gary Usher. Gary Usher says, if Landy knows that you're calling me, he will kill you. He will literally kill you. And so this woman leaves her job two weeks later, takes expired drug bottles, as well as names, phone numbers, and bank account information, and turns them over to the California Board of Medical Quality Assurance. Wow. Boy, they're... That's a gutsy move. Uh, Dude, this woman is the unsung hero of this story. Now, when you read this in passing in most places, they basically say that, like, the family just discovered some stuff was awry, and then they they take legal action. Kay gets totally written out of the story, which is a bummer, because of of what she does, Stan Love is able to uh, file for conservatorship, but he doesn't get it. Mm. Because, and this is crazy, Crazy. So he does a press conference. Stan is at the lectern and he's talking about what's going on. And all of the sudden, Brian Wilson walks up on stage. Oh gosh. He grabs the microphone and he starts reading from a piece of paper. I have heard the charges made by Stan Love and I think they are outrageous. I feel great. I mean, this is creepy stuff, dude. Yeah, man. Creepy, creepy stuff. So then, Carney and Wendy Wilson, shout outs Wilson Phillips, uh, yep. Carl and Audrey will contest Landy's control of Brian. They'll pursue legal action on May 7th of 1991. And then Brian will start giving interviews where he says his family is just trying to control him. So this guy is so deep in his head. Yeah. He's got him doing interviews, defending that, him. That he's got him defending him. Mm, it's, it is crazy. Now, eventually, there's been all of this stuff piling up over several years against, um, against Eugene Landy. There's actually stuff, if you go back and look, all the way back into 1984, there's a uh, a case brought against him where people are saying, well, we don't think, you know, and it starts to build. And then there's this whole thing where Melinda Ledbetter calls uh, from the car lot and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. alerts them. And then there's like, there's these things that start happening and they will finally get some action and get him completely out of Brian's life by the early nineties. The cute ribbon on this story is that once 
Landy's out of his life, Melinda Ledbetter will come back into his life, and they'll get married in 92, and they are still married. Oh, wow. Now, if you dig a little deeper, there is a quote from 1998 where one of the Wilson daughters, shout out Wilson Phillips, calls Melinda Melandy, inferring that Melinda is also controlling Brian. And that he's basically <laughs> gone from one Svengali to, to another. Now, that's less publicized or known. I mean, maybe that's something we will know in future years. Regardless, it's tough. All of this is tough. And it's it's tough because it's, it'd be tough about anybody. But it's tough yeah. because it involves one of the greatest songwriters and most brilliant musical minds Ever. I mean, this guy yeah. with minimal collaboration created Pet Sounds. Yeah. Which we didn't even we didn't even mention that Pet Sounds was like a failure when it came out. <laughs> People did not like it. Yeah, it's 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 definitely a case of what could have been. Right. I mean um, like this is we talked we've been talking a lot recently on the show about these like sliding doors moments where rock and roll history could have been really, really different. There yeah. was there was one about, you know, with if Rick James hadn't illegally fled the country and dodged the draft. Same thing with right. Jerry Lee Lewis. If Jerry Lee Lewis hadn't married his first cousin once removed, which is so stupid. Right. This yeah. is another one, right? It's like if if the Beach Boys had had a better functioning family dynamic and if Brian Wilson had been more mentally healthy, yes. would the Beach Boys not be thought of as a nostalgia act? You know what I mean? Right. There's still a and version they, of him running around with like John Stamos playing. Oh, I'm sure. And as like a kind of a, I mean, they're not a flash in the pan, right? But it's this very small window of of legitimate productivity, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, they, they so there is there is Beach Boys music all the way up until the late seventies, but like yeah. nobody's really paying attention to it. Yeah, exactly. Much after Pet Sounds, right? Sixty three to sixty six, a I mean, three that, year that's, window. That's the money. Yeah, right yeah. there is is sixty three to sixty six, and it's. I mean, we talk about this all the time on this show, but. Nobody has careers like that anymore. Like the 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 not with that much output in that short a time. Right. It's wild. It no. is nuts. Yeah. So okay, let's on a happier note. Do you have a favorite Beach Boy song? So I was thinking about that because I was thinking about like what's your favorite song on Pet Sounds? Um, Good Vibrations is not on Pet Sounds, but that is, I mean, from a production standpoint, it's pretty amazing. I think it was done in like three studios. Um, like it's like three songs put right. together. Yeah, so yeah. I, that one always has a, you know, high ranking for me. But songwriting, there were there were a couple of pet sounds that blew me away. Here today, that one was like, oh, this is amazing. You know, and I don't know why. Like, I don't know why that one sticks out. And there was one other one, um, I'm waiting for the day. Those were the two off that album. Forget, you know, wouldn't it be nice? And I know there's an answer where God only knows. I'll take those two any day. Yeah, I do love God only knows. God only knows is beautiful. Also, a song I've grown a lot of appreciation for. I remember my first exposure to Sloop John B was in fifth grade choir in in which I was a soprano. uh, And I didn't really understand the implications of that, but it was like made a big deal that I was a soprano. Music teacher would always point it out. And I was like, yeah, so what? Who cares? I'll be a soprano for another four years. Like I was a soprano for a long time, guys. Uh, And then, yeah. uh, But I remember being like, this song's really dumb. Uh, So hoist up the John beat. Like, why are we? And now when I hear it in its original context, it's a pretty beautiful song. 
It I is. Like it. it is. Now, that's like an old folk song, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And here's the other song that I really like on, on Pet Sounds. I also really like a particular cover of it. And I, I, I know you do too. So I'm yes, using, I'm using this as an excuse to play it right now. This is Frank Black's cover of Hang On To Your Ego. I mean the hook, dude. The hook is everything. You're right, and and it seems like he recorded it twice. Uh, Brian Wilson did, right? Because he did. Hang on to your ego, and I know there's an answer. He cut it both ways. Oh yeah, yeah. He he didn't like hang on to your ego because he thought it was too selfish. And then he so I think the album cut on Pet Sounds is I know there's an answer, right? Yeah, I think hang on to your ego is actually maybe on the uh, anniversary edition. Yeah, like yeah, the B, yeah, like the B be right. side. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, any excuse to play Frank Black, I will. So, take it. so be honest. If Murdoch was here, would you play Frank Black, or did you play Frank Black for me, Brian? Uh, <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, he definitely is a Frank Black appreciator as well. But I do know that you and I—that particular Frank Black solo album—is something yes. that you and I have had more than one conversation yes. about and celebration of. Yeah. So, I mean, because it opens with headache, right? That's is that, uh, that record or Los Angeles? Oh, okay, oh, yeah, maybe it's that. Yeah, it might be um, Los Angeles. No, you're right. Frank Black, Frank Black. Yeah, no, it's Los Angeles. Headache is on the other record. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Headaches on uh, on teenager. teenager. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, so um, wow, this has been a journey. <laughs> Thank you for going along with it. I'm sorry <laughs> that like on a on a random evening I'm like just like let's get really depressed talking about. Let's get heavy, man. Let's, let's get heavy. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, if you've got a question, because uh, that's what this all started with. Someone sent us an email. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. On Instagram, you can find us at Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Uh, you can hit up Murdoch on Twitter at Hey, it's Murdoch. And uh, until next time, you got to do the heavy lifting here. What should people keep oh, doing? Man. Oh, man. Keep telling stories. Woo! Nailed Was it. that it? Was you that nailed it. One? You got it. You nailed it. That was perfect. <laughs> Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.